Hello everyone, welcome to session three of our study in the book of James. Today we'll be discussing verses 13 through 18 of chapter one, in which James shifts focus from trials on the outside to temptations on the inside. Not only should we persevere in the midst of trials as we learned last week, but how we respond when facing difficulty can be just as significant as the difficulty itself. So let's read James 1, 13 through 18 in the CSB. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after evil desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So just as trials come to all of us, so do temptations. And I believe James is mentioning temptation right on the heels of discussing trials, because it's usually in the midst of difficulty that we're tempted the most. That is when we are the most vulnerable and the most susceptible to falling for a trap. While undergoing difficulty, we may be tempted to question God's will and his love for us. We might think God has given up on us. We might be tempted to resist his will and take control of the situation ourselves, or doubt his provision and try to take revenge. But James wants to make it clear that these thoughts are not from God. God doesn't tempt anyone. If we find ourselves desiring to respond to a situation in a way that causes us to doubt God's love, his goodness, and provision, then those thoughts must be rejected. That is not from God. God tests us, but never tempts us. Not only does God not tempt us, but he regulates the temptations that do come our way. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. And in verses 14 and 15, James explains exactly from where temptation originates. And understanding where temptation comes from better enables us to refute it. Verse 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after evil desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Temptation comes from evil desire, and there is no evil in God. If we feel tempted, the problem stems from our own evil desires. There is no, the devil made me do it, defense. Now, there are two things that can be said about the devil. He is pure evil, but he is not unaware. He not only knows when to tempt us during trials and troubles, He knows where to tempt us, in the areas where we are the most predisposed to evil. Now, it's important to understand this because if we don't realize that the source of temptation comes from our own natural bent towards sinful practices, 
then it will become all the more simple to fall for it and commit sin. And sinful acts can grow into a sinful lifestyle. Now, I have an incredible sweet tooth. So going into a candy shop is a real temptation for me. The wonderful aromas, the sight of all the delicious sweets, makes me want to spend all my money and eat everything in the store. But my friend, who's allergic to chocolate, has no such temptation. Even though she sees and smells the same things I do, she doesn't have the same desire. You see, it's not necessarily about the thing itself, but our reaction to the thing. I have a natural tendency to like sweets. She does not. But if left unchecked, my natural tendency can lead to gluttony, which is sinful. There are normal desires that we have as humans that are given by God that in and of themselves are not sinful. If we were never hungry or thirsty, we would never eat or drink. Sex is a normal desire. Without it, the human race would not continue. It's when we want to satisfy these desires outside of God's will that we get into trouble. Notice verse 14 says we are tempted when drawn away and enticed. Other translations say when we're lured away and enticed. This carries the idea of baiting a trap or a hook. The bait not only attracts the prey, but hides the trap or hook. Our own evil desires not only makes temptation look attractive, but also hides its devastating consequences. Lot, in Genesis 13, probably wouldn't have moved so close to Sodom if he hadn't seen the well-watered plains of Jordan. David, in 2 Samuel 11, probably wouldn't have committed adultery with Bathsheba had he known it would lead to the death of his baby and the murder of Bathsheba's husband. So we must realize that we all have a natural bent towards sin that is innate in all of us, says Romans 3.23. And because of that, temptation will be all the more appealing to us. So what's a Christian to do? How do we oppose it? Well, we follow the example of Jesus, who, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, in Luke 4, it tells us Jesus used God's word. Three times Jesus responds to temptation with, it is written. Now, turning stones into bread seems like a logical thing to do if you're starving, but not from God's perspective. Grounding ourselves in God's word makes us better able to detect the bait and not be lured away. Verses 16 and 17 goes on to say, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So don't let anyone tempt you or deceive you into thinking that God is not good and does not love you. If we doubt God's goodness, then Satan's offers will seem that much more appealing. From the Greek, verse 17 actually says every good act of giving and every perfect gift is from above, meaning God is good even in the action of giving. He doesn't give grudgingly, but from his abundance of love for us. Have you ever received a gift from someone who you could tell really didn't want to give it? Even though the gift may have been expensive, how meaningful was it to you really? 
Have you ever given a gift out of duty rather than desire? Do you think a gift can become devalued if there's no caring heart behind it? There are two items that I own that are of great value to me. One is a small pin in the shape of a heart cut from red felt with little plastic stars glued on it. The other is a little pin in the shape of a crown cut from yellow felt with little silk flowers on it. These items are of such great value to me because they were given to me by my children when they were little. They made them with their own two little hands just for me because they love me. You see, it's not about what they gave, but the way in which it was given. And not only is every good thing in this world from God, but it comes from a God who loves you deeply and eternally and who enjoys giving us good things. In verse 17, it says his good gifts are coming down. The phrase coming down is a present participle, meaning continuous action. So if we're having trouble seeing the goodness of God, it's not because he doesn't or has stopped giving good gifts. Maybe we just need to pray for the ability to see them. 1 John 1.5 says God is light. And so the goodness that comes to us comes from the Father of lights who does not change. So if we believe God has given us good gifts in the past, then we can count on him to give us good gifts in the present. We must not doubt his goodness when faced with trials and temptations. That's what the Israelites did. They forgot the goodness of the Lord and turned away from him. Nehemiah 9.17 says they refused to listen and did not remember your wonders that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. On the other hand, it was faith in God's goodness that prevented Joseph from sinning when he was tempted by his master Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. Joseph recognized that it was because of God that he was placed in control of his master's estate, which is why he responds to Potiphar's wife by saying in verse 9, How could I do this immense evil and sin against God? He recognized that all the blessings that he had received came from God, and that knowledge empowered him to resist the temptation. So it might be a worthy exercise while deep in the throes of temptation to stop and meditate on God's blessings in our lives. Proverbs 10.22 says the Lord's blessings enrich us. So verse 18 says, By his own choice he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here, James describes God's ultimate goodness. He gave us spiritual birth or salvation. 1 Peter 1.3 says, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God chose to send his only son Jesus to sacrifice himself for our sins in order to save us. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. Even knowing our evil desires, even knowing how easily we would fall to temptation, he still chose to save us. Verse 18 tells us this birth is given to us by the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23 says you have been born again through the living and enduring word of God. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to reveal the plan of salvation to our hearts and minds. 
It is God's word that works within us to bring about salvation. It is God's word that strengthens us to refute temptation. And it is God's word that reminds us of the goodness of the Lord. So how much time do we spend with God's word? Verse 18 says, by our salvation, we have become first fruits of his creation. Now, first fruits is a familiar term to his Jewish audience. According to Proverbs 3.9, Jews brought the first and best of their crops as an offering of honor and devotion to the Lord. Here, Christians are considered first fruits because according to 2 Peter 1.4, we share in God's divine nature. So the challenge as we close for this week is to answer the question, are we living our lives as first fruits? Are we giving God our very best in honor and obedience to him? It's indeed possible if we are confidently resting in his goodness and relying on his word of truth, then it's possible. When we focus on just how good God has been to us, then that is a great motivator for living a life that pleases the Lord. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.